For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. More than conquerors. This is part one, Romans chapter eight, specifically verses 31 through 39. So welcome back this morning in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, where we have now arrived at the conclusion of chapter eight. Uh, I feel as though it's a milestone of sorts <laughs> to get here. I think it's been more than a hundred sermons now in the, in the book of Romans, and it has been a tremendous blessing. The, the amount of theology that, that the Lord has blessed us to be able to consider through these books of the Bible so far, through these chapters of the Bible, has been astounding and been a, just a tremendous, a tremendous blessing. But not only have we arrived uh, to the conclusion of chapter eight now, but we've also arrived at last to the conclusion of a a magnificent case, a tremendous case that Paul has been building since chapter four. And it's Paul's case for the assurance of the believer. Paul wants the believer to be certain of his salvation. Paul wants the believer to be assured that justification by faith alone in Christ alone will assure him of heaven. Paul wants to build the confidence of the one who has placed faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So Paul's been laboring uh, in that case since chapter four. Paul's been laboring to build the confidence of the one who's been justified by faith. Now in building that case, Paul has opened to us some of the most exalted theology in all the Bible. Uh, It is a wonder and a marvel. Um, It's theology that pertains to the gospel. It's theology that lays out for us the manifold work of God in saving undeserving sinners like ourselves. It's the manifold work of matchless grace, matchless mercy, matchless love, compassion, patience, goodness, kindness, a manifold work of the infinite wisdom of God, whereby God remains both just and yet the justifier of the one who has placed his faith in Christ. A manifold work, if you will, that eventually terminates upon our ultimate glorification together with his son in eternity to the everlasting praise of his glory. And this, brothers and sisters, as we've seen, is an airtight case. It is an airtight case. I think a case that is well summarized by the words of Paul in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. The promise of God that we would inherit with his son, that promise of God that he originally gave to Abraham, that promise is given through the means of faith so that that promise may be given entirely according to grace. And that promise of salvation is given entirely according to grace so that it might be sure to all the seed, so that it might be certain to all those who share the faith of believing Abraham. It's on that premise on that premise of our salvation's certainty that Paul then goes to work. And he goes to work in chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight, building his case that if you have placed all of your hope, all of your trust in Jesus Christ, then yours is a hope that will not disappoint. You can take it to the bank, amen? It is a hope that will not be frustrated, that will not be thwarted. Paul, in this, we see evidenced. Paul is not calling us to a blind faith. You know, believe these things because I told you to, or act this way because I told you to. Paul is not calling us to a blind faith in these facts. Paul knows well 
that if you and I are going to come to a whole-souled, wholehearted embrace of what God has provided to us through the gospel of his son, if we're going to live in light of that grace, if we're going to live in light of God's revealed word to us, then we've got to lay hold of this glorious theology that supports his point. Paul is going to build his point, build his case on this glorious theology. And so what is Paul asking us to do in that? To reach this conclusion, to reach the conclusion that we begin to examine today, you've got to understand all of these things that build up to Paul's point. What is Paul doing in that? Paul is calling us to think. He's calling us to learn. He's calling us to study. He's calling us to meditate. Do you see the connection? We've got to know these things so that we can arrive at the place where Paul wants to take us, that we can embrace in faith the glories and the certainties of all that God has done for us in the person and work of his son. And if we don't learn, study, read, meditate, think along the way, then we're not going to get there. Do you see? We're not going to get there. So what does Paul do in building his case? He begins in in chapter four by referencing the example of Abraham. Salvation is by the gift of an imputed righteousness through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the point of chapter four. He makes the point, he makes the point, builds the point that we are justified through the means of faith alone apart from any works of the law. Therefore, in his case, we're led to the inevitable conclusion. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he doing? What is Paul doing in that? He's calling us to understand doctrine. He's calling us to learn that theology so that we come to right conclusions. Right conclusions about God. Right conclusions about the gospel. Right conclusions about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Right conclusions about faith, about grace, about mercy. Right conclusions about what God has provided for us. Why? So that we'll live in light of those truths. Do you see? Paul grounds the imputation of Christ's righteousness in the biblical principle of federal headship in chapter 5. And then he calls us to consider the implications of that theology. Therefore, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, or in the same way, Through one man's righteous act, the Lord Jesus Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. We need to live in light of that truth. Like, come to understand those things and embrace them in faith. In order to do that, Paul knows we have to think. We have to learn. We have to understand this theology. So he explains the believer's relationship to sin in chapter 6. He explains the believer's relationship to the law in chapter 7. And he leads us inexorably to the conclusion that opens chapter 8. Therefore, there is at this present time no condemnation to those who are in union with Jesus Christ. Builds up to his point, doesn't he? We reach that point only by virtue of a masterful argument. By walking through a a beautiful room with a vaulted ceilings of exalted theology. And we come to a declaration of all that God has sovereignly done to save sinners. There is therefore now at this present time, no condemnation to those who are in union with Jesus Christ. Paul continues, right? We have the spirit. And the Spirit is given to us as a pledge of God's promises to us. We have the Spirit as a down payment, as it were. The Spirit is the one who sustains us to the end. The one who sustains us and preserves us even through the difficulties and adversities and trials and tribulations of this present life. 
when at last, at the end of that life, we will be glorified because, because those whom God has determined to set his love upon in eternity past, he predestines, he decrees them to be conformed into the likeness or the image of his own son. Moreover, those whom he has predestined, these he most certainly will call to himself in time. Those whom he calls, these he certainly justifies. And those whom he justifies, he will most certainly glorify. And that to the everlasting glory of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for the purpose that our Lord Jesus Christ might be the head and ruler of a host of the redeemed, renewed after his own image, and to the praise, the everlasting praise of his name. So after thinking, right, after learning, after studying, after meditating on these magnificent truths, Paul relying Upon your understanding of these things, Paul then begins his closing remarks. What is it then that we can say to these things? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, brothers and sisters, then who can stand against us? It's not a question at all, really, is it? (laughs) As much as it is a, a profound and inevitable conclusion that is drawn from our own informed faith. It's a conclusion that is drawn from our own studied and informed understanding of all of this glorious theology that unpacks to us the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to understand these things, Paul then brings us to the conclusion, what in the world are we to say to these things then? If God is for us, then who in the world can stand against us? No one and no thing. Do you see? Paul wants to bolster our faith. He wants to bolster our confidence. And this is just a a triumphant conclusion to a masterful case. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That should result in great confidence in our Christian lives, great boldness in our Christian lives. As we face sin, as we face the enemies of God, as we preach the gospel, as we're a light in a dark place, as we love one another in the church, as we work through conflict, as we pray, as we worship, should motivate, compel within us, cultivate within us great confidence, great boldness, boasting in our Lord. Amen? Boasting in God, not in ourselves. Well, you notice through these chapters, we've had nothing to do with it. Boasting in the Lord, boasting in the Lord. It's theology, and it's, con- it's a conclusion that should change the way that you think. It's theology and a conclusion that is drawn to change the way that you live. It should inform your faith. It should fuel your love. It should drive your zeal. It should compel your obedience. should bolster your hope. should compound your joy. But it's only going to do that to the degree that you grasp here what God has revealed to us in his word. If you're going to grow, it will be by his spirit, through his word. So why, why would we belabor that point at the opening of Paul's conclusion here, his concluding comments at the end of chapter eight? Because we won't fully get to the place that Paul now hopes to bring us, a tremendous place, a wondrous place. We're not going to get to that place if we don't understand how to get there. And we understand how to get there through the theology that Paul builds in the opening chapters of this book. This theology won't shape our actions 
if this theology does not first shape our thoughts and shape our beliefs. Having shaped our thoughts and shaped our beliefs, then this theology will shape our actions. This should grip your mind. It should fire your imagination. It should capture your devotion. That's where Paul, want, where Paul wants to bring us. And the reason that I mention this this morning is because the modern day professing church has been swamped by a diseased tide of anti-intellectualism. Study is a bad word. Why are you spending all that time in your Bible? Reading the Bible is not important. What's important is a relationship with Jesus. The professed Christianity of many is stunted as a result of it, or it's shallow or it's altogether empty, professing Christians trying to divorce God's revealed word from God's spirit, from God's work in the life of a believer, from the Christian life. Those two things, those, those things cannot be divorced. They are married inextricably together. And all because of the effects of a willful anti-intellectualism. Doctrine is disparaged. Theology is neglected. We get lazy. We don't like the hard work that comes down to it. Knowledge in that environment, in that atmosphere, knowledge is supplanted by emotion. It's supplanted by experience. We end up with political convictions or we end up with emotional convictions, but we don't end up with biblical convictions. We'd rather have a cotton candy counterfeit rather than the meat of God's word. And so ultimately, biblically then, Johnny can't think. <laughs> right? Johnny is basically biblically illiterate. <laughs> Influenced by pop culture, Johnny wants a pop Christianity. <laughs> May it never be so among us. Brothers and sisters, may it never be the case among us. This, um, the end of chapter eight is a beautiful place to be. <laughs> it's a glorious place to be. These truths of all that God has done for us and all of that worked out in detail through the theology of Romans to get us to that point, showing us that God's salvation of sinners through faith in Jesus Christ is sure because God himself is faithful to his word. And if that is the case, then we are more than conquerors. And whatever we then set to do in faith or whatever adversaries, whatever foes we face, we can face knowing that. And that's going to have a tremendous impact. In the words of Jesus Christ, in the words of Jesus Christ, what is the first commandment of the law? What is your reading of it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, by emphasizing here the use of our mind, we're not diminishing our need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. You don't, we're not diminishing. It's not a zero-sum game. We're to do all of that. I'm not advocating a, a dry, cold, academic approach to the Bible. However, our love, think with me, our love with heart, soul, and strength is fueled and motivated by the content of our faith. It's not fueled apart from the content of our faith. It has a firm foundation. <laughs> Heart, soul, and strength without mind is like zeal without knowledge. It's like faith without reason. You drop your brain at the door of faith. Faith without reason. As one theologian put it, what we need is we need warm devotion that is set on fire by truth. Truth will set your devotion on fire. Is your love for the Lord cooled? Is your obedience cooled? Is your fight against sin difficult, troublesome? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need devotion that is set on fire by truth. We need heat, the heat that is produced by light. And when we embrace the light that produces that biblical heat, the more inclined we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So Paul wants us to think. He wants us to remember the theology that began, the case that began in chapter four, in particular, the theology of chapter eight. And he wants us to arrive with him at the inevitable conclusion to to his case. What shall we say to these things? What is the conclusion that we should draw? What should be our response? Verse 31, our response should be this. If God is for us, then who can stand against us? If God is for us, then the opposition of anyone or anything else is of no concern to us. You know, I can't, I can't imagine Paul saying that dispassionately. Can you? We arrive at the end of chapter eight. Well, you know, what are we going to say then about all this? Like, what can we say? God is for us, then who can? No, right? It's not what's going on. Paul, Paul is saying it like that. If I can imagine pounding the pulpit. If God is for us, then who in the world can stand against us? There's a, in other words, there's a, there's a confidence in what Paul is saying. There's a triumphant zeal in what Paul is saying. There's triumph in his words. Paul is boasting in the Lord. He's exulting. He's reveling in, glorying in the truth of God. And he's proclaiming that. That question, that question is proclaiming in worship the praise of Almighty God who has done it. Praising the Lord Jesus Christ who has won it for us through his own death at Calvary. God is for us. That doesn't mean we're not going to have adversaries. Amen? And our adversaries are growing. They continue to array themselves. Um, They're getting more and more violently objectionable to the word of God, as it would seem. We're going to have adversaries. Verses 35 and 36 imply some very powerful adversaries. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. For the sake of his name and for the sake of his cause, we may be figuratively killed all day long, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in him, we are more than conquerors. We see this confidence. We just see this boldness in David in Psalm 56. Turn back to Psalm 56 with me. David comes to this very same conclusion. If God is for me, then who can stand against me? No one and no thing. In Psalm 56, David expresses the same conviction. David's knowledge of this fact then compels him to cry out to the Lord in faith. And David's faith is victorious over David's fear. If you remember, uh, David is fleeing from Saul, fleeing for his life. Saul wants to kill him. Saul wants him dead. So David then flees to the camp of the Philistines in Gath, and the Philistines in Gath, Gath want him deader. <laughs> they, uh, they want to kill him. David has nowhere to go, okay? So he cries out to the Lord in faith based upon what he knows of God. And he says this beginning in verse one, be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. It's all a remembrance that this is entirely the mercy, mercy and grace of God. Do we deserve this? No, it's by God's mercy that God freely gives Man would swallow me up, fighting all day he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. 
Whenever I am afraid, David is resolved, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. Why would David praise his word? It's from his word that David has learned to trust. Do you see? His word applied to David's circumstances. His word applied to David's life. And David, through the word of God, by the spirit of God, trusts in God. In God, verse four, I will praise his word. In God, I've put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Who can stand against us? All day, verse five, they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God? You number my wanderings. You put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. This I know. That is a bold, confident faith. And I would submit to you, that is a bold, confident faith because of what Jesus, or because of what David, because of what David knows of God. Because of what David knows that the Messiah has done for him. What can flesh do to me? I will trust in you. God is for me. Verse 10, in God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God, and I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? David knows, David knows that God is for him. David's faith bolstered. David confident in the Lord. David's boast is in the Lord. What can man do to me? God is for me. It may have been these very words of David that were in the heart and mind of Paul as he wrote our text at the end of chapter eight. If God is for us, then who can stand against us? For those who have turned to Jesus Christ in faith, there is no reason to fear the condemnation of God. There is therefore now no condemnation. If you've put your faith in Christ, it is well-placed, brother. It is well-placed, sister. We have a hope that does not disappoint Look to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice, exult, boast in the salvation of our God. There was a time when God was your enemy, when God himself was your adversary, when the the thin veil of your frail life was all that separated you from divine omnipotence exercised in wrath against you. Like a spider hanging by a thin thread over the mouth of hell. In a group this size, there are some of you who are hanging by that thin thread even now. Turn from your sin and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. He is your only confidence. For those who turn to Christ in faith, he is omnipotent power, mighty to save. He is tremendous confidence for the Christian. Having been justified by faith, we have peace. We have been reconciled to God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is for us in anything and in everything we face. God is for us. Don't let that little word if at the beginning of the question cast doubt on what Paul is communicating. It's not the if of uncertainty, if God is for us. It would be better translated with the sense of certainty. Since God is for us, then who can be against us? Do you see? That's not the if of doubt. That's the sense of certainty. Once again, once again, Paul's emphasis is on the work of God in our salvation. This is all possible because of God. You have no strength in yourself. You have no reason to boast in yourself. You have no reason for for confidence in yourself. He is the one who has foreloved us. He is the one who has predestined us. He is the one who calls us. He is the one who justifies us. He is the one who glorifies us. He is the one who works all things together for our good. And he is the one who has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And in all things then, in all things then, he is for us and not against us. Now, as if all of the theology that preceded this tremendous case and this tremendous conclusion, Paul then gives us proof. Do you have difficulty believing that? (laughs) Do you find yourself doubtful of those facts? Then Paul has given us invaluable and indisputable proof of that fact. We have proof that God is for us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, rhetorical question, (laughs) how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul makes an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God is not withheld from us, the greatest good imaginable, if God is not withheld from us, the greatest possible good, then every other lesser blessing will certainly, will necessarily flow to us by his grace. Every one of them. Alluding to the eternal relations of the Godhead. It is the father in verse 32 who did not spare his own son. A father relates to second person of the Trinity as his only begotten son. The only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity relates to God the father as father. There is one who stands in relationship to that. Uh, to God, the father in that way. And that is the only begotten son. It's through the sacrifice of his only begotten son that the Lord Jesus Christ then brings many adopted sons to glory. There's only one who stands in that perfect relationship to God, the father, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's for the sake of those adopted sons that God withheld not his own son. He spared not his own son, but rather he delivered him up for us all. Dr. Murray said this, sparing here refers to suffering inflicted. Parents spare their children when they do not inflict the full measure of chastisement that is due. Judges spare criminals when they do not pronounce a sentence commensurate with the crime committed. By way of contrast, this is not what God the Father did. He did not withhold. He did not lighten one whit the full toll of judgment executed upon his own well-beloved and only begotten son. There was no alleviation of the stroke for it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. That is an astounding, an astounding thought. There was no mitigation no reduction, 
God did not withhold the full and undiluted fierceness of his wrath. And the wrath of God against all our sin was propitiated. The wrath of God against all our sin was extinguished upon the person of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The entire scope of that full substitution for sinners like you and me is communicated by the words, spared not. Not sparing his only begotten son, verse 32, he rather delivered him up. Paradidomi. It means he gave him over. He turned him over, subjected his own son to the full retributive damnation that all of our sin and all of our rebellion had merited. Now we tend to focus, don't we, on the father's love for us. But think about in this, the father's love for his only begotten son. It's a perfect love, a matchless love, an infinite love. And a love in the context, in a context where there was no other option available. No other option would have been adequate. No other sufficient or acceptable sacrifice was possible. And God delivered him up. There's never been a moment, never been a moment at which so great an outcome depended with such weight upon so great an act. There's never been a moment like that one as our redemption, the redemption of that innumerable host from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation depended entirely upon the willingness of God the Father to deliver up his own son to save us. Guilty sinners, enemies of God. To deliver up his own son to the horrors that he faced, that he faced in our place on the cross um, submitting his son, sub- subjecting his son to our accumulated hell. And God being omniscient, God knew the cost that he would pay. God knew what would go on there. He weighed our redemption on the scales and God delivered him up. He was taken by lawless hands, crucified, and the son of God, God's only begotten son was put to death. It wasn't ultimately the Jews who delivered him up for envy. It wasn't ultimately... Judas, who gave him up for money. It wasn't ultimately Pilate who delivered him up for fear. It was God who delivered him up for love. And if he had not delivered him up, then we would be doomed. We would be doomed without hope in this world. Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Do you see the connection there between those two thoughts, right? Having delivered him up, having spared not his own son, how much more with him will he also freely give us all things? And the statement there of Paul in Romans chapter five, verse nine, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If the measure of love is how much it gives, then this love passes knowledge, <laughs> passes understanding. Do you see? And notice next with me in our text, notice next the vicarious nature of the sacrifice. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, he did so 
for us all. He did so for all of us. The all of us contemplated in verse 32 is the same us that is contemplated in verse 31. Those whom God himself is for and not against. Which means those whom he is for, the us of verse 32 is the elect. Those whom God has called, justified, and glorified. Those mentioned specifically in verse 33 as the elect of God. Those for whom Christ makes intercession in verse 34. In other words, you're not going to find universalism in this text. You're not going to find the, the unbiblical notion that Christ died for everybody in the whole world, just making salvation possible or potential. So that if anybody, God with his hat in his hand, wooing people to come to him, if anyone will turn, they'll turn to him and God will use that pool of atoning work of Christ to save it. No, he died for us, for those whom God has foreloved before the foundation of the world, for those that God predestined to be conformed in the likeness of his son, for those God called, for those God justified, and for those that God will eventually glorify. He died for us, all of us, all of his elect. He delivered up his own son for the elect of God. What is the proof? What is the proof that God is absolutely for us? The proof is, is that he did not spare his own son but rather delivered him up for us. Brothers and sisters, it's this supreme gift, right? It's this supreme gift, the gift of God's own son that is the guarantee of all others. It is the guarantee of all the others. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not then with him also freely give us all things? That question is rhetorical. The answer is unmistakably clear. So great is the gift of his son. So astounding are the implications of that gift that every lesser grace attending to the unmitigated good of his people is absolutely certain. Absolutely certain. He is working all things together for our good. How is that possible? Possible through the work of Jesus Christ person of Jesus Christ. Having now been justified by his blood, much more than we shall be saved from wrath. Together then with the free gift of his own son, he freely gives us all things. That word freely speaks of the father's willingness to give. He is freely willing, willing, freely gives. It, it, that word speaks of the father's delight to give. The fullness with which the father gives, the joy with which the father gives, having delivered up his own son, now in him, he delights to give you all things, delights to provide for you everything that you need, delights to work all things together for your good. He delights to be for you, not against you. God delights in you to give you little lambs, the kingdom, fear not, right? Fear not little flock, why? Because he delights to give you the kingdom. having now been justified by his, by his blood, much more than we shall be saved from wrath through him. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan said this, my grace, saith God, shall be yours to pardon you. My power shall be yours to protect you. My wisdom shall be yours to direct you. My goodness shall be yours to relieve you. My mercy shall be yours to supply you. And my glory shall be yours to crown you. 
This is a comprehensive promise for God to be our God, and it includes all. (laughs) This is a love, brothers and sisters, this is a love which simply cannot fail at any point. It cannot fail at any point. Why? Because God is love, and his love is infinite, and his love is perfect. And the love with which he has loved his own son, we, in union with his son, are objects of that infinite and matchless love. So what is the conclusion of the matter? (laughs) What then shall we say to these things? There is no other rational response of a reasonable faith than this one. God is for us and no one and no thing can stand against us. Do you believe it? Nothing, nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. So my question to you this morning in closing is this. Is God for you or against you? Is God for you or against you? God is for you and entirely for you. With divine omnipotence, with divine omnisapience, with divine omniscience, with goodness, with care, with love, with compassion. God is entirely for you, entirely for you through faith in his son. Faith alone in the person and work of his son alone. If you will turn from the disaster of your life that you've lived, trying to live it to yourself, if you will turn from the the wreckage of that heap. And if you will turn to Jesus Christ in faith, if you will trust him, you will turn from your sin and you will entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. And if you'll follow him in faith, Jesus Christ will impute to you his own righteousness, his righteousness given to you as a free gift by where, by, whereby you in the sight of God are declared righteous, justified in his sight. And you have peace with God, reconciled to God. All your sins forgiven, all your guilt removed, the wrath of God toward you propitiated, extinguished at the cross. And in that, by faith, you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ and God, no longer your adversary, now your friend. And you're now as a son in his household. Is God for you or against you? As surely as God's promises of grace will be poured out upon those who are his. Just as surely God's promise of justice will be poured out upon those who oppose him, will be poured out upon his adversaries. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly and he knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Lord God knows. If you've not turned in faith to believe upon his only begotten son, then you are condemned already. His wrath abides on you and you are merely awaiting the execution of your sentence, which should be terrifying to you. And God is not slack concerning his promise. There is no court of appeals. So be diligent to be found by him in peace. Be diligent to be found by him without spot and blameless, clothed in the perfect righteousness of his own son, lest you have God himself as the one who stands against you rather than the one who stands for you. Now, brothers and sisters, If these texts are true of you, if you've turned from sin to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, then 
embrace these truths in faith. Embrace them. Wrap your arms around them. Wrap your minds around them. All that Paul has taught us, all that the word of God has revealed to us. Wrap your mind around that glorious theology. Think upon it. Meditate upon it. Let it sink into your heart. Let it sink into your soul. And let that change the way that you think. Let it impact what you believe about God, about his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, about his spirit, about ourselves, and let it transform your life. This is the way that God cultivates faith in us and cultivates confidence in us and all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ. This is the way that he preserves us to the end. We have many foes. Our adversaries are not few. Uh, They may occasionally hide and then may occasionally be brought into the light. (laughs) But we have one who is mightier, uh, who stands for us, not against us. And we are more than conquerors through him. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this confidence that you've given us through your word. This confidence that we have through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten son, who, whom you have freely delivered up for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might have peace with you, that we might be as adopted sons in your household, that we might be the beneficiary and the objects of a matchless love, that we might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. That we may worship you and serve you in eternity, that we may be a redeemed, redeemed humanity, praising the Son in eternity to the glory of your grace. Lord, thank you for these matchless, superlative, wondrous, marvelous truths. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, transform us Renew our minds uh, through your word. Wash us with water by the word. Help us to live in light of it for your glory, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.